Welcome to Mogul's interview series. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and I'm honored to introduce our next guest, Yotam Adolengi. Yotam is one of the world's most celebrated chefs and restaurateurs. His latest cookbook, Simple, has just been released and we get to hear about it today. Yotam, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's so exciting to have you. I'd like to start at the beginning. So where were you born? I was born in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, in Israel. And did you always know that you wanted to be a chef? Uh, actually, not. When I became a young adult, I went to university and I studied philosophy and comparative literature. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. While I was studying, I did a bit of work at a newspaper, so I was a bit of a journalist for a little while. And then when I reached my mid-20s, late-20s, I thought, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? And I thought, no. So I, I went to London and I took a course in the Cordon Bleu Culinary School. And I became a chef, which is really weird because I never really thought that, that is going to be my career. I always thought, well, you know, I love cooking, I love eating, but I never thought about it as a career option. But as soon as I started working it, I really loved it. And what I loved about cooking, well, I love all aspects of cooking. I love getting the ingredients cooking, but the, what I like the most is getting people's reactions. Because when you feed people, you get the most wonderful reactions. It's better than anything else. It's like fireworks of emotions. You see people's faces when they put something really delicious in their mouths. It's very gratifying. So you went to Cordon Bleu, and when you were done, what happened next? Well, the Cordon Bleu, I didn't do the whole diploma, so I, I took a few courses. And while I was there, I started working. I worked mainly as a pastry chef, which I loved. I loved working with doughs and cakes and the transformation that is uh, involved in baking is phenomenal. You know, I always say if you take a chicken and put it in the oven, you get a chicken. But if you take a cake batter, you get magic. You know, it's so different from what you had before you put it in the oven. So I, I really enjoyed the world of baking and I still do. Last year, I actually published a book called Sweet, uh, which is all about cakes and biscuits and desserts, I still very much love that world of baking. But then, then over the years, I've started cooking savory food as well. And yeah, so that was the beginning and myself in a, in a restaurant kitchen doing pastries, which I loved. Then what made you transition to savory? I didn't really change completely. I still do a lot of baking, but I just do more. So <laughs> I, I haven't left that world behind. About uh, 15 years ago, I set up a business with three other partners. It was a small cafe uh, called Otolengi in Notting Hill. And one of my business partners is Sami Tamimi, with whom I've later collaborated on, on writing books. But at that time, uh, he was the savory chef and he made lots of delicious uh, salads and roasted vegetables. And I was in charge of the pastries and the cakes and we created this world in which you have those incredibly beautiful, healthy vegetable salad uh, on the display, mirrored by the same kind of mountains of beautiful sweets and meringues and brownies and cookies, etc. And the whole ethos of the place was about creating really delicious food, fresh, and selling it to the public. And this is really, with that little Otolengi in Notting Hill, is, is how I started my career. Uh, and then I got more into savory cooking and recipe writing and all the rest. That was the starting point. What was the inspiration for branching out on your own and having a restaurant named after yourself? That's a big deal. And how long did it take you to prepare for it? And what was that process like? It was a really long process because, so first of all, I, I got my name on the door of Telengi because uh, I was kind of the main partner. There was three of us, now there's four of us. 
as partner in the, in the company, but um, I happened to be the one that was kind of pushing more at the beginning. And, and so that was the daily. And after a couple of years of us doing really well and really becoming popular in West London, we decided to expand a little bit and open another restaurant. And this one, it was in Islington in North London. And so that one also had the takeout aspect, all this beautiful food that's pre prepared daily, mm -hmm. but it also had a, a long communal table where people could sit down and share food. And we served food either from the counter, all, all the stuff that we prepared, but also from the kitchen. And that became kind of a format for other restaurants that we opened uh, later on, which is a, a kind of an environment where you're surrounded by food, the ingredients from the market, the prepared dishes on the counter, mm -hmm. uh, the prepared cakes and pastries and bread. So it, it's what I loved about it is that we, we created a world in which people are surrounded by food, not only eating it, but also buying it to take home with them. And you have some of that on your website also, right? I went online and you can buy various items. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And what's up with the wine? So essentially the shop that we opened online has the things that we love, you know, yeah. so either ingredients that are sometimes hard to get because ingredients that are in, in Ottolenghi Simple but also in the other books are not always easy to find. You want to go online to get them, so we offer them online, but they're also some of our products uh, that have a kind of a long shelf life. Uh, wines we like. We have now a kind of a range of beautiful tablecloths to set up at the Ottolenghi table and, and, and linen. So, you know, it's, it's a very kind of random set of things, but they all make sense to me because I love them so much. It's available internationally. It's a bit more difficult to ship from Britain to the US, but it's mm. definitely possible. But we, we do everything all over the world. That's great. So we were talking about your restaurants a second ago, and I'm curious, I think that most of your restaurants are currently, all of them, right, are in the UK, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, they're all in London. Is that ever going to change? I mean, I'm dying <laughs> to bring something to New York. Do you think, you're here now, <laughs> do you think you might expand? Um, I never say never. I mean, I don't have a plan to expand. And London works very well for us because, in a sense, when the restaurants are around, you kind of know what's going on. So even if I'm not working in the restaurant, I can always pop in in the afternoon or the evening mm. and check that everything's okay. And if you are a perfectionist, and I am one, I have to admit, I'll raise my hand and say that, you just want to make sure that everything runs well and that the quality is at the level that you want it to be. So that is really important for me. I might do it one day, but I don't know exactly how. So at the moment, we've got um, six locations in London, each one slightly different from each other. Some are little cafes with the counter for food that I describe. Others are full-blown restaurants. And each one has its own identity and is a little bit different. Are you thinking about opening more restaurants? I've just opened a restaurant called Rovi. It's in Fitzrovia, which is in central London. And we have a wonderful grill on which we, we grill vegetables mostly, but also some meat and fish. And it's, a, it's all about the wonderful fresh vegetables that come off the grill and are extremely seasonal. You know, we do asparagus and all sorts of onions and beans in the summer and, and, and the spring. And then later on, we do root vegetables and cabbages, carrots and all sorts of stuff that comes in a bit later. So, but it's all about the grill and what you can, you can get out of it. And it's truly delicious. Although I say so myself, it is really, really good. I believe you. <laughs> Where do cookbooks come in? You have several really celebrated cookbooks 
you've got all these restaurants. Mm. Where where do cookbooks fit? Cookbooks. In? Well, I've published my first cookbook about ten years ago, and I thought it would be a one-off thing because essentially what we did was trying to capture the recipes and the dishes that people love so much in our restaurants and cafes in a book so they can go home and cook it. Uh, especially people in other parts of the world, like in North America or Australia, they come to London and love the food, but they can't come too often, so they can cook from the books. It was a big success, so as soon as that book was published, I spoke to my publishers and they said, we really think you should publish another one. So the next one came, and now the books kind of have a life of their own, which is parallel to the lives of the restaurants, and uh, I spend much of my time, most of my time actually, in a test kitchen, which is a real... A uh, great place to be under a railway arch in in West London, and I work on developing recipes for different publications, but mostly for the books. And that's a great way to spend the day, you know, <laughs> cooking and experimenting and coming up with all those amazing flavors and putting them together in books. It's it's a great thing. I have questions about how you do all of that, but mm. let's do it in the context of your new book. You have this new cookbook, Simple, which has just come out. Congratulations. Thank you. How do you feel about it? I'm very proud of this book. It's been a year and a half or two in the making, so it's a long process. So when you get the physical object in your hands after such a long process, it's very gratifying. You feel very happy and satisfied. So that's the feeling I have. But I'm also very proud of this particular book because what we try to do in this book is try to put ourselves in the shoes of people who cook and try to understand how they cook and try to remove some of the issues, difficulties, anxieties uh, that hold them back from cooking or cooking at least my food. And because I do like to use a lot of interesting ingredients and I don't often think of how long the ingredient list is and I just like to put it all out there so people can enjoy but I know that for some people that is quite a chore and also they think, okay, I cook Ottolenghi for a, week, a weekend or a special occasion, but it's not something I can cook on a weeknight because it's just too much work. So um, what we did in this book is talk to various people to try to understand what simple cooking means for them. And I really got very different answers. Like some people said, for me, simple cooking is I can cook something within half an hour. That's a simple dish. Others said, for me, simple is that I don't need to go shopping. I can rummage through my cupboards and find a packet of rice and I go to the fridge, get the butter out and some tinned tomatoes and this and that. And I can put something together without going or doing much shopping. Uh, other people said, oh, it's, for me, it's about something that I can cook, put on the stove, come back after two hours and it's ready. So, so these answers were really interesting because what I realized is that in a sense, what is easy for me or simple for me is not necessarily easy or simple for you. And different people have really different expectations from recipes that call themselves simple. So what, what we did in the book, and I'm very happy about the system that we developed, that every recipe has a little icon, I can show it here, stating how simple it is. What makes this particular recipe simple? So this one has got an I and an M. And I'll explain what these are. So we took the acronym, the word simple, and each letter in the word simple signifies a different way in which a recipe is simple. So S stands for short on time. So those recipes would take you only half an hour to cook. I stands for ingredients, so less than 10 ingredients. M stands for make ahead. All those dishes that you can prepare in advance and just serve to the table or heat up and serve to the table. 
P stands for pantry, recipes that you can cook from what you've got, mostly pasta, rice, couscous, you know, things that are there, tinned, frozen peas, you know, those kind of things. L stands for lazy. Those are the stews and the roasts and all those things that you just put them somewhere, forget about them and come back after a couple of hours and you've got a great uh, meal. And the E stands for easier than you think. And that's about how people think about certain things and say, oh, that's not for me. Then I encourage them to say, hold on a minute, look at the recipe, ice cream or a bread. It's actually not that difficult or not that complicated. It's actually something that you can do. Um, yeah, so that's the little thing. So every recipe in the book will be simple in one or more ways, uh, according to, to this little nifty system that we developed. And are they really simple? <laughs> for, so for someone like me who doesn't have the time to cook, is overwhelmed by the idea of cooking, is where do I start if I get this book and I want to try it? Yeah. What's the simplest recipe? <laughs> yeah, so there, is, there, are, there are some really simple recipes in the book, I have to say, and even for a real starter. So first of all, one of the dishes that I really like is eggs with leeks. So this is something that I always go like, it's, not, it's a non-committal kind of, the ingredients are very simple, they're not very difficult to get. Um, so you take some leeks and chop them up and saute them in a pan with a bit of oil and, and, and butter. Once they're soft, you add a bit of stock or water and you allow them to, it to bubble away and then you, you crack six eggs into this pan and add some feta cheese into the leeks while you do that and you leave it on there and within um, 10 minutes you have, or even less, you've got beautifully braised eggs in a, in a nice leek sauce, which is a great thing for breakfast. There's two ingredients there, za'atar and preserved lemons that are a bit exotic, so are not always easy to find. But even if you cook it without those ingredients, you chop another herb in or you add some lemon, grated lemon zest or something like that, you still get something that you cook within 20 minutes, has very few ingredients, and it feels like a very grown-up, delicious, very accomplished dish. So you can start with that. The way that you describe it and go through the steps, that sounds like something you could maybe manage. There's another one you can do. Oh, please. Yeah, in the dessert section, if you like desserts. Love. Uh, there's a recipe for custard. That's definitely an E and easier than you think because people think I can't do custard. But actually, this one involves like a minute number of steps. You take cream, you take egg yolks, you take some cornstarch, sugar and vanilla. You whisk it together in the bowl and then you pour it into a baking dish. You put this baking dish in another baking dish with a bit of water inside and you put it in the oven. And within 40 minutes, if I remember right, you have a beautifully set custard. And when you eat it, you think, oh my God, I can't believe that I made it myself because it's so good. And you can let it set in the fridge so it's nice and cool and then serve it with fresh strawberries or, rhub or cooked rhubarb or any, any kind of fruit that you have. And I tell you, people, you will think that you're the best cook in the world if you serve them that. So the way that you talk about these, you do make it sound simple. Is it that easy when you look at the book, when you actually look at the recipes? You know, the easiest thing is to boil an egg. Okay. Although some people might even fail in that. So there's no <laughs> recipe for boiled eggs in this book. But I think technically the, the steps are really, really simple. Really, really simple. I'll give, you, I'll give you another example of something that you maybe find intimidating. There, I've got like pea and feta fritters. Mm -hmm. uh, you take frozen peas, defrosted. You take some feta cheese. You take an egg, some breadcrumbs. 
Uh, all ingredients you can easily come by. You put it in your food processor, you kind of press the thing twice mm -hmm. and you've got the mix. And then you heat your oil and you take two spoon and you drop it into the oil. Technically, it's the easiest thing in the world. If you are terrified of frying things, then, then yes, but you'll never know until you try. So I think, I think all the recipes here, and I stand behind that, are really technically could be for beginners. But I think you should figure out what kind of cook you are, like I mentioned. So if you are someone that wants to use only few ingredients and not spend too much time, you choose the one with an S and an I, and then you know you're in good hands. When you're looking to do a simple recipe, which one are you? Are you the S, the I, the M? <laughs> Very good question. So if I've got, I've, I'm, an, I'm an M and an S. Okay, so uh, remind us of So the M is the make ahead. So if I'm cooking for people, I entertain uh, people often on the weekend. So uh, it, it happens a lot that people come over for brunch or, or lunch on a Sunday. I like to get most of the work done on Saturday night where, you know, after the kids have gone to bed and I've got a bit of time, I, I prepare mostly everything on that, at that moment. So when people come around, I just need to warm up or toss together certain things. So on the weekend, I'm definitely a make-ahead kind of person. I'm an M person. But during weekdays, I'm an S kind of person, which is short on time because often I come home from work, I want to cook for myself or for my, or for my husband and kids, and we, we want to get it all out of the way pretty fast. So then I'm an S kind of person. Then I go, okay, actually, I don't want to spend too much time because you know when, when you have to feed your family, you don't have time to waste because people don't have patience. You know, you could go on spending an hour in the kitchen, but then everybody will drift away and go somewhere and, and walk, go watch TV or something and they wouldn't eat your food. So that's a, definitely a case of an S. You still, you spend all day in a test kitchen or most yeah. days or at your restaurant and then you come home and you make a meal. You don't do uh, takeaway from, no. your, from your restaurant. It's a very good question. I do not cook much. Uh, so the, the, it doesn't happen very often that I need to do that. But sometimes I do, not very often. But most of the week cooking that I do is on the weekend. Yeah, I take, I, I do get food from our shops or I bring it from work because I spend time in the test kitchen. There's always tons of food to bring home because uh, someone's got to eat it, of course. Uh, so yeah, most evenings, definitely I don't cook. And when you have friends over on the weekend, um, are you testing your recipes with them? Is that part of what you're doing or is no. it just for fun? And no. is cooking still fun? Yeah, is well, fun? this is the thing. I think you need to, you need to remember that um, I, there's two modes of cooking. There's the one where you kind of test recipes and you're in that kind of very particular mode where you note down every little thing. And then there's cooking for fun on the weekend. And cooking, testing recipes is definitely a case of um, it's not so much fun. You know, you just need to be very precise, pay attention to everything. But I find cooking for friends on the weekend very nice because I really haven't really cooked much during the week. Recipe testing is not so much cooking. It's very technical, but I love... What is it? Because you don't, because when you cook at home, you put the music on, you have a glass of wine and you cook and it's just a very pleasurable, relaxing experience. It's not work. But being at work, and I've got a team of recipe testers, so often I'm just by my computer screen writing things down, and then they call me and say, okay, let's taste now, and we taste, and they have a conversation. That's, that's, a, that's very focused. That's work. I mean, it's fun work because, you know, we eat well, but it's work. It's not, it's not like leisurely cooking and, you know, like at home. So you're coming up with ideas for recipes, but you're not actually cooking them you're telling other people to cook them and it always varies so the way it works at the moment 
we're a team of two or three people always testing recipes together. We normally chat once every couple of weeks and plan and throw ideas in the air. I'm a very collaborative person, so I love to work in a group. Mm-hmm. Up until a few books before this, like plenty, I, I used to do all the testing by myself and cook everything. And then I got bored of my own company. So I decided that I need to kind of expand, expand the group. And slowly we've been adding people. And I find now I really enjoy working in a group because there's more ideas that are thrown about and people bring their own history, their own experiences, whatever they like to eat and cook. So we have these gatherings where we talk about ideas for what are we going to do for our, you know, Christmas spread or what are we going to do for New Year's salads or what are we going to do when we're doing something about particular grains. So we have these kind of random conversations. Sometimes it's just a dish and then we find it at home later. And then we cook. So I do less of the testing. So there's two or three people that are testing recipes and I join them in the tasting stage. Um, Sometimes I cook myself, but they do most of that. Mm. It's really mind-blowing how in-depth the conversations are. So it's about like, let's add a little bit of this and let's take a little bit of that. And we can test a recipe sometimes eight to 10 times before we think it's perfect and, and ready to go. So it's a very precise uh, process and, and, uh, and, and the results are good, if I can say so myself, because they've, we've gone through it over and over and over again. Mm. And you also have a rapport with these people that you're working with. So it's probably like a seamless process. Yeah, because we know each other and often the chefs that work in my test kitchens have worked in the restaurants before. Mm. So they know the style, they know what the expectations are and how much of what kind of flavors uh, I like. So the conversations are actually very constructive because we don't really argue so much. I mean, sometimes someone says, I don't like it, I like it, but it doesn't happen very often. More often is how could we improve it? What can be done to make it just a little bit more interesting? Could we add still on top of the cilantro to take it to the next level, you know, those kind of conversations. So when developing a new cookbook like Simple, where do you get your inspiration for the recipes? Because there are a ton of recipes. Yeah, there's 130 recipes in the book. And you have multiple books, each with that many recipes. So how, how do you do it? It's funny that you're asking that because when I started writing recipes, I was sure that one day I'm going to run out of ideas. I was absolutely terrified. I thought like, how can I do like another week? And I was only doing like a recipe a week. Now there's so many more. But I think what you do after a while, you realize that it's a bit like music. You know, it's like there's there's an infinite number of combinations that you can play with, even if the number of ingredients that we work with is limited. So where I get my inspiration is when I travel, when I go to a restaurant and try something that I really like. And I said, yesterday I went to a restaurant here in New York El Buco Alimentare, and we had like a salad that was made out of Italian leaves, uh, like Castelfranco, Radicchio, all those bitter leaves with a buttermilk dressing. And I thought to myself, that's a nice thing. Like, I've come across this, I've had this before, but maybe I haven't done it recently, so maybe we should do that. So I make a little mental note to myself, you know, bitter leaf salad. And I thought, oh, maybe but we should do it like with some kind of fish or maybe with some fried pancetta or something along those lines. So just like that, having lunch sparked an idea. Mm-hmm. At other times is when I flick through a cookbook and I think, oh, that that's, looks great. Should we try and do something like that and make my own twist around it? Or sometimes it's just a visual key when I see something they go, that's a nice contrast. I'll, I'll cook something that looks like that but tastes completely different. So... 
But more often than anything, it's those conversations with the people that I work with, the other chefs, that is where the ideas come from because everybody has their own ideas. They have their favorite recipes and they are very happy to bring it into the conversation. So if you look at the book, always in the introduction, I mention the person that had the idea. I say, oh, this was this and that person's friend and he used to cook it in this and that scenario. So uh, I try to always mention the, the source of the recipe and where it came from. That's so nice. Do you have a favorite recipe in the book? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm sure they're all your favorites. <laughs> it's very difficult to choose a favorite recipe because it kind of just, it, it changes according to what you feel you want to eat. Like today, I really feel like there's a recipe for a, um, for a, a chicken marbella, which is a take on, a, on an old American recipe from this Silver Spoon cookbook from the 1980s. And uh, I've changed it a bit, but it's, it's chicken that's marinated with olives and capers and date syrup and dates and some vinegar and oregano. And it sits there for about 24 hours and all the flavors come together. And then you throw it on a roasting tray and, it's, and you just cook it very simply like that. But the only thing you need to make sure is you, you, you let it marinate. And it's kind of sweet and sour, but also earthy from the, from the herbs and it's, it's super easy and I love it. Actually, maybe that's the one you should try because it's just putting everything together and it's so delicious. That sounds up my alley. <laughs> easy and delicious. <laughs> Excellent. Do you dine out? So you're in New York right now, so obviously you're eating in other places, but when you're in London, are you dining out? Are you having other experiences? Yeah, I always enjoy going out to restaurants and exposing myself to different cuisines. Uh, I, I don't like going to high-end restaurants. I normally like to go to more like restaurants that are of a particular culture or food culture that I'm interested in. So uh, I'm trying to think of somewhere that I've eaten recently that was really interesting. And I went to a Spanish restaurant in London recently called Sabor. And I had a bunch of really delicious Spanish tapas dishes, croquettes and things like that. And, it, and as soon as I left the restaurant, I said, I've got to do one of those soon because I love them so much and I'll do a Middle Eastern version of, of that croquette, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, or more recently, we had a guest over, came over to London from Malaysia, who was teaching myself and other chefs in the company about Malaysian cooking, which uh, Malaysia has one of, one of the best food cultures in the world. It's mm. not very famous, but in Malaysia, you've got a combination of Indian, Chinese and Malay people. And when those cultures come together, you get really interesting dishes. Mm. Uh, so that woman, Debbie, who came to London, gave us a masterclass in Malaysian cooking, not even Malaysian, actually subculture called Nyonya, but I won't get into that, but it was just fantastic and immediately sparked an idea. So. As soon as we left, we had an idea for an okra dish with a yellow bean paste, cilantro and chilies. It, was, it came out really nicely. So anything could be a source of inspiration. You said that you were going to take that dish and kind of morph it into a Middle Eastern version. And I know that Middle Eastern cooking is your thing. That's what you're known for. Is it always going to be your thing? So I started off with Middle Eastern ingredients and Middle Eastern food because I grew up in Jerusalem and I feel comfortable in that world. But I've actually cooked over the years. I've cooked quite a lot of Asian food with Mexican ingredients, with Southern European ingredients. So I'm not completely, uh, totally dedicated to Middle Eastern cooking, uh, but I feel that that's kind of the starting point that I've had. But I've ventured in all kinds of directions, and wherever I 
find exciting food that has got those kind of flavors that I like, the heat, spice, the acidity, uh, the multi-layered flavors that you get in the, in the food of the Middle East, then I'm very happy to go and try it and borrow something or mix and match. It's, uh, for me, there's no reason to, to not be playful when it comes to food. You want to you wanna mix things up a little bit. So if I have a really good ramen soup, uh, which is essentially Japanese, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't be cooking a ramen. You know, it's like, it's so good. Mm. So you've just come out with this cookbook, and I, I know that it's brand new. It's probably even too soon to ask the question, but mm. are you already thinking about the next one? The next book. I'm always thinking about books. I have one probably coming in a couple of years' time, but I don't have a theme for it yet. I've got recipes for it because I am constantly test recipes. And my recipes are always very focused on vegetables, mm-hmm. uh, which has always been my focus. This, this book has got meat, it's got fish, it's got desserts, but it's the vegetables make the majority, the bulk of the recipes in the book. So it will still be that, but I don't know exactly which direction it's going to take. Uh, that remains to be seen. So with your cookbooks and the restaurants and everything else you're up to, you're busy and you said that you've got a husband and kids at home do you have time for fun and if yes how do you find balance and what do you do i really mean it uh, well i have fun i have time i make time so I, I i try not to work too much which is sometimes difficult but very much possible so i don't work on the weekend normally that's kind of family time and i try to be there in the morning and the evening before school and after school with the kids and I do that most of the time unless I'm traveling like I am now Um, and I just found that if you are happy to work with a group and you know divide the responsibilities then it works so I I love spending time with my kids I love Lego (laughs) Legos like building? yeah 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 I love Lego and because my son Max is five years old and he's very into Lego blocks with him, I rediscovered it from my childhood, and now we get these massive things. and And I think I'm getting more f- pleasure from Lego than he actually does. Because the other day we were kind of shopping for Lego, and I showed him one of the BB-8, one of the robots from Star Wars that I really wanted him to get, and he said, "I don't want that, but maybe you can get it for yourself." And I said, "Yes, I think I will get it for myself." So. At, at, at my grand old age, I decided to buy myself a Lego set and I'm very happy. But I also like, um, I read a lot. The one thing that I do to uh, relax is Pilates. Oh. Yeah, I, I do a lot of Pilates. I've been doing Pilates for 20 years. And, um, and I go twice a week and do the, the machines. I'm very strict on it, you know, the, the reformer and the Cadillac. I started off doing Pilates because I had back issues. Uh, which luckily I don't have anymore, but it's really good for maintenance and I, I do it kind of religiously. And I'll tell you a little secret. At some point, I even trained as a Pilates teacher. So I got a diploma as a Pilates teacher, which I don't really do, but I don't teach. Recently? Well, about 10 years ago. That's, um, but you decided not to pursue it. No, no, no. I, I, I already had a career and I, had to, I, I didn't need a new career, but my teacher said to me, you love it so much. Why don't you take a teacher's training course? And I, and I said to him, yeah, why not? And I did, and I spent six months going to lessons and doing my homework and learning about physiology. And I just learned something new, which was really interesting, but I never actually practiced as a teacher. I just, 
I just got the diploma, which is which is kind of fun. Good for you. And I was going to ask how you stay so fit and look so good with all the cooking that you do. And I guess that's one of the answers. That well, you practice Pilates. Yeah, Pilates so. is not good for keeping the weight off because it, when that's not, you know, you need to do, you know, it's not cardio. So, but it is very good for keeping the muscle structure, you know, well balanced and, and, and keeping your body healthy. Um, so I, I do some, sometimes I do a bit of jogging and this and that, but Pilates is the activity that I, I do the most. When I asked how you relax and how you have a good time, I find it interesting that you say Pilates because most people think exercise isn't fun, but it yeah. sounds like it's very calming and very grounding. And Pilates and yoga are just incredible because you really need to focus. So I, I can go to the gym and spend an hour on the treadmill, but I don't come back feeling relaxed. I find back like I did another activity in my day because it was more running. It was more, you know, it was it was more of the same. But Pilates, I feel that I really need to concentrate on the muscles and engagement and doing it properly. And I find back that it's really relaxing. It's like cooking. It's like mm -hmm. takes your head off things and puts you in, in the moment. Is that still how you feel about cooking? When I cook at home, definitely. Yeah. When I when I kick everybody out of the kitchen <laughs> and I'm there on my own, I put my music on and I can cook. I feel that it's very relaxing and it's kind of it, it's it's my way to to de-stress, mm. definitely. And when you do that, do you have a go-to recipe at home? Do you have something that's your favorite, either your favorite type of cuisine or a specific recipe that you just love to cook and zone into? I love to, so it's, it's, it sounds really silly, but one of the things that I love to do on the weekend, on a Sunday night, is to cook for the week. Uh, like things that I could give the kids during the week when the opportunity comes. So one thing that I do is, like I do lots of sauces, you know, kids love pasta. So I, I do tomato sauce, uh, tomato sauce that I put in little containers and I put in the free, freezer. Uh, I might do like a, like a lentil stew or a soup that I put. Mm. My husband does that too, but a lot of those. So we have, always have tons in our freezer, but I do like that kind of repetitiveness. And the other thing I like to do, which is Helen Go, who's the co-author in my previous book, Sweet, told me is to how to make uh, crepes, pancakes. Ooh and to freeze them for the week. So I make like 60 crepes and I put them in the freezer. And then the kids often, if we don't want to be lazy for breakfast, I take them out and I, I sp spread something like Nutella on them or some maple syrup and they love that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so do you and your husband bond over cooking? Because you said he also cooks a little bit. Yeah, both so of us cook a lot. Do you share that with each other? Or is that something you, like, does he give you inspiration? For oh, yeah, no, actually he does give me inspiration. And uh, my, Carl, my husband, he he's British, so he does really good solid kind of British things like pies and casseroles and, and things like that. So I always look at how he makes those things and I learn something. He also makes really mean breakfast dishes, sometimes with eggs, a bit like the ones I described to you with the leeks, but he did the other day, he did one with spinach and chard and then he cooks it in the oven. And it ended up being a recipe in the, in the newspaper where I said, this is actually Carl's dish because he, he inspired me to do that. But often we kind of spend time in the kitchen, not too often, but if, if we can find something for the kids to do that doesn't involve us, then we might even cook together. Mm. Are they interested in cooking? Are they too young? They're a bit young. They're five and three. So they look and sometimes they want to help a bit, but they're just, they're just a bit too young to actually cook. But are they kind of around when you're... Yeah, the they're interesting. Base? Yeah, they're around the kitchen and they're interested in what's going on. And often they ask to kind of make 
make pancakes and and whisk things so I, I let them do that oh well it'll be fun to see what their <laughs> careers end up being and kind of to that extent i wanted to ask do you have any words of wisdom for young people that also want to be chefs or to own restaurants yeah. what advice do you have to give the first bit of advice that i have to give is that if you want to be a chef or own a cafe or a restaurant i think you should follow your heart because it's possible uh, so that's the positive side. The other, the, the other is that it's also a lot of hard work. So you need to make sure that that's what you want. So I found that the, the difference between just enjoying cooking and cooking in a professional kitchen is like night and day. There are two completely different activities. When you cook a great dinner for your friends, that's great. That's fun. But it's got absolutely nothing to do with restaurant cooking, which is, it's all about preparing huge quantities and getting ready and pumping the food out in a very short amount of time. So you need to make sure you like that too, if you're going to be a chef. So you need to get experience in a kitchen and make sure before you commit to being a chef for the rest of your life, go and work somewhere for a little while and see if you like the environment. Also, kitchens are notoriously, you know, hectic and difficult. So you want to make sure that this works for you. But... Having said that, I really think the other really important piece of advice, I always say, if you work in a kitchen, either in the kitchen or in the front of house as a, as a waiter or a waitress, you always need to make sure that you work in an environment that you like. Because many people survive in kitchens and in, in the front of house in places that are awful and they go, oh, I need this for my experience. I need to work in such a place because I need to rough it for a while before I become really good. And that's just not true. In a sense, you can find a great way, a great place that will teach you everything you need without hating it. If you wake up in the morning and say, I don't like going to that job, just move on and work somewhere else. People are always needed in restaurants. You know, you're always, I mean, at least in this point in history, you're always going to find a, a chef's position or a, cook's, a junior cook's position or a waiter's position. So I really recommend find a place where you really love working when you're appreciated. Don't expect not to work hard, but expect to have a positive environment and I think once you've done that then you can grow and, and become a great cook or a great front of house person. Great advice. People look at you and they see all of this success and of course you've had amazing successes but I wonder if you faced any challenges along the way right because it's easy to look yeah. at somebody that is so celebrated and has done so much and to think that it's maybe been easy or just to see yeah. just to see the success and I wonder if yeah. you could talk about that and maybe how you've overcome it or not. Yeah. No, I, I have experienced a lot of failures in my life and uh, or semi-failures, things that felt, moments that I felt that things are not going anywhere. And when I was 30 years old, I was a chef, a budding chef. And I remember uh, thinking, where is my life going? You know, where, where, where is my life leading me to? And like, I felt quite lost because 30 is a kind of a momentous moment. You kind of look back and you go like, I'm already officially grown up, right? <laughs> like, I, I need to become a bit serious about the future. And I just had a kind of a, quite a junior job in the kitchen. And things turned out, you know, really well after that. I was promoted. And then after that, my, my uh, friend uh, came over and said, let's, think about setting a business together. But it looked like it's not going anywhere. And, and I think at these moments, you have to remember that life is made out of moments where you're at the bottom, but it doesn't mean you're not going to come back up and, and, you know, and find something else. Uh, so that, that's, that's what I took from there. But also I had like 
businesses that didn't work out. A couple of years ago, we tried to set up a, a kind of place which was a little bit less formal, a bit more fast food in London. And we spent a lot of time, money and energy on putting it up. And we thought it was great, but the general public didn't think it was that great. And we didn't have enough, enough people and it was difficult. And we had to close it after, I don't know, six months. And it was a really, really difficult decision, really tough. So when you look at success, you, like you suggested, you forget that actually it's made up of lots of moments. And I think, yeah, it's not easy to, the restaurant world is really tough. It's not a way to make a, a lot of money. It's a way to really have a good time if that's your passion. But when you fail, it doesn't mean you won't succeed next time. And that's something I learned, I learned the hard way or, or the right way. Uh, from, you know, from failure to success, to small fail, failure, to more success. I mean, that's how life is, is built. Those are good words of inspiration. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. So I hate that we're about to close this interview. Before we do, there are just two final questions yeah. I want to ask. Uh, the first is, I would be really, really remiss if I didn't ask for something funny at the end. So um, do you have any kitchen confidential type of stories, any crazy behind the scenes or, or in front Think, of the house. Things that go went completely wrong no, or, or, or just, I don't know, just any wild story. Because <laughs> there must be so many in the line of business that you're yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good one. I mean, the first time I was in front of a camera, which was a long time ago, more than 20 years ago, I was working in a, in a bakery shop and um, and I remember they came to shoot me cooking a devil's food cake. And I made it. And I said something that you should never say in front of the camera. I said, that's super easy. And when I took it out, I don't know what I did wrong. I must have forgotten the, the ingredients. It completely sunk like a souffle <laughs> in front of the camera. And, and I really remember that moment and I'm still kind of mortified because it was such a silly things to say, like stupid of me to say, that's super easy. You just don't say that's just such a rookie's kind of thing. But as soon as I said that, or just not long after I said that, it sank so ceremonially and dramatically. And it was, yeah, it was, it was not a good moment. Not a good moment. <laughs> I love that you can laugh about it now. I think yeah. we've all had moments like that, yeah, right? Where we course. like said something and felt so confident and then... Yeah, <laughs> that's one of life's lessons, you know, when you feel confident, well, ask yourself twice before you, are, you express it. Especially in front of a camera. Yeah. <laughs> that's very funny. Just the last few things. First of all, we're in New York City and, and you're here right now. I'm just curious, do you have a favorite place to go? Uh, I... My memory stretches to my last meal, and I went to uh, El Buco Alimentare uh, yesterday for lunch, which was really delicious. And we had little fried artichoke hearts, which were to die for, and a porchetta sandwich that I will never forget. It was so delicious. Their breads are just good. And it's like one of these places that I really like because it's really good, but informal. So that, that's, that would be my choice for today. <laughs> So last thing, you have your cookbooks, you have your restaurants, you recently started a podcast, mm. and I'm sorry we didn't have time to talk about the podcast, because I know you had Lin-Manuel Miranda as a recent uh, guest. I had Lin-Manuel Miranda as a guest, and his wife, Vanessa. <laughs> I have Michael Palin, which is a legendary British comedian from Monty Python, and then became a travel writer. I had Nigella Lawson, who's an incredible food writer. So I've had a bunch of really cool people talking to me about 
cooking, about life, about simple pleasure. It's called Simple Pleasures, the podcast. It's great fun. And I love the conversations. I love having conversations. A bit like the one we're having now, but I love asking the questions rather than giving the answers. So <laughs> that's really cool. Well, you're very good at giving the answers. So thank, thank you, very you much. so much for your time today. This was really wonderful. It was great getting to know you. Thank and congratulations you. on your new cookbook. Very exciting. And we wish you all the best and look forward to seeing what else is next. Thank you. This is Jessica Lips with Mogul Interviews. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.